This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 12, Heideggerian Existentialism. All right, I'm going to take you back um, briefly to Husserl. The problem of the bridge, how do we get to truth? How do we reach the world? How do we know it exists? How can we be sure if what we see or what we think we see is really there? And that's a question of how, how we can get some grounding, this problem of grounding. How do we feel that we're at home in the world? How do we feel there's something we can count on? How do we feel like we're stable? Now, Shklovsky's idea of the distinction between recognizing something and truly seeing it is very, very close to Husserl's distinction between the natural attitude and the phenomenological attitude. I mean, they're, they're very different kinds of writers, their descriptions are very different, but basically, you know, what Shklovsky's saying is that, you know, most of the time, we kind of sleepwalk through life. Most of the time, we don't really see things. Somehow this is kind of echoey, I'm gonna turn this down a little. Um, most of the time, we don't really see the world. So something has to kind of shake us. Sh uh, guy is like, lower the mic, okay. Let's try that. Um, something has to kind of shake us into really seeing. And for Shklovsky, that's poetic language. And for Husserl, it's this much more technical and somewhat mysterious process of entering the phenomenological attitude. Um, but one way, again, to think of these things is to try to think of them a little bit metaphorically. Like, think about like when you're functioning in a foreign language. The words become conspicuous to you in a way they're not in your native language. You notice things. You notice things you wouldn't notice in your native language because in your native language, you would process things automatically. That's a lot of what these guys are talking about. Something has to kind of throw you off to enable you to really see. Um, it involves effort. It involves effort to break ourselves out of habituation. Something has to kind of get thrown off. Um, now, the second thing I want to emphasize again about Husserl is that Husserl comes into the long-standing problem of the bridge. How do we get from subject to object? And he believes he resolves it by intentionality. That consciousness is not just wrapped up in a box, that it always is already reaching out to grab an object. It's transitive. It's like a transitive verb. It takes a direct object. You're seeing something. And the philosophical move is to say that the relationship between subject and object precedes the parts. That in the beginning is the relationship. There's no moment prior to the relationship. So he takes Descartes' um, cogito ergo sum, the ego cogito, the I think, and he says it's not just I think, you know, it's, e it's ego cogito cogitatum, it's I think an object. There's always an object, like a verb that requires a direct object. Um, now, he's making a dual move here. One of the things he's doing is effectively objectifying subjectivity 
with his idea of this transcendental ego, that you can purify the subject. This is the part that strikes me as a mad fantasy. But it's an attempt to both objectify subjectivity um, by making this pure, transparent, universal, generic I, and simultaneously to subjectify objectivity by saying there's no object without a subject. Do you kind of, so just kind of put that in your head and let it, so it's a dual move. Now, if I were to say this, if I were to turn this around a little bit and, and use a, a proverb that um, I know exists in Polish, Russian, and Yiddish, and probably in many other languages as well, but not in English for some reason. Um, the proverb is, you can't dance at two weddings at once. It's a little bit like in English, you can't have your cake and eat it too. That doesn't make any sense in English. Um, Husserl is a classic example of a thinker who tries to dance at two weddings at once. He wants all the depth of subjectivity and all, all the firmness and certainty of objectivity without giving up either one. And he, he find, he's going to find himself in a dancing at two weddings problem but his whole life will be an attempt to say, yes, this can, this can be done. Okay. So this is where we are you know, in this epistemological problem when Heidegger comes onto the stage. This is, like, this is where thinking is. So who is Heidegger? Um, we'll come back to him later in the course. He's an enormously complex figure. Um, he was, for our purposes today, he was Husserl's student. Um, he was Husserl's graduate student. He is studying with him as Freiburg, and he is working as his assistant. Um, and Husserl invests enormous hopes in him. I mean, Husserl feels like he is the next genius who is going to carry on the phenomenological project. He's about 30 years younger than Husserl. He was born in 1889 in a small German Catholic town of Meskirk on the edge of the Black Forest. I mention this because throughout his life he will be associated with the Black Forest. This is still a thing. Um, people go to the Black Forest and they make a pilgrimage to the hut in the Black Forest where Heidegger wrote Being in Time. So he's associated with the, the Black Forest. He was originally trained for the priesthood. He has a background in theology. There's a lot of influence of classical philology of the ancient Greeks um, and of the Bible. He's drawn to Husserl in part by that slogan that draws Levinas, that draws Edith Stein, that draws Engarden, that draws Adolf Reinach. Um, Reinach was going to be the great phenomenologist of the generation of Husserl's students, but, uh, but dies fighting for Germany in the trenches in 1917. But he's following this, this cry of to the things themselves, zu den Sachen selbst. He's kind of under the spell of that. Um, so he's teaching as Husserl's graduate student, teaching assistant in Freiburg, and he very quickly becomes famous for his lectures. He was apparently an extraordinary lecturer. Um, you know, shortly before his death, you know, Hannah Arendt speaking about him on his 80th birthday would say, nobody had ever been able to give a lecture like you did and nobody has ever been able to do it since. I, I sadly was not at any of these lectures and so I, I can't vouch for this myself, but he becomes famous by talking. 
he's not doing very much writing um, when he's a graduate student, but he's, he's already attracting a following of students. Then he gets a job, kind of an equivalent to an assistant professor job at Marburg, and he goes to Marburg, um, and he's also gaining a kind of almost cult following of students there. Um, he is, at this moment, you know, and this is in, you know, the, the, we're, we're going through the First World War, the early 1920s now. Um, he remains at a moment of kind of coming out of imperial cosmopolitan, uh, cosmopolitanism. He is a man of the forest. He's not a man of the city. He's not a man of the cafes. He looks disdainfully at all those urban intellectuals who like to hang out at coffee shops. Um, he likes to hang out in the forest. He likes to go skiing. He famously shows up to various academic events in his ski clothes. Um, there's a famous debate that happens in the late 1920s in the Swiss ski town of Davos between Heidegger and Ernst Cassira, and I'm going to read you the description that Cassira's wife writes about meeting Heidegger. And they're at this academic dinner party. She says, all the guests had arrived, the women in evening gowns, the men in dinner suits. At a point when the dinner had been interrupted for some time with seemingly endless speeches, the door opened and an inconspicuous little man came into the room looking as awkward as a peasant who had stumbled into a royal court. He had black hair and dark, piercing eyes, rather like some worker from southern Italy or Bavaria, an impression which was soon confirmed by his regional accent. He was wearing an old-fashioned black suit. For me, what seemed the most worrying thing was his deadly seriousness and his total lack of a sense of humor. Um, so Heidegger is attracting a lot of students as a young professor. His lectures are filling up, but he's in danger of losing his position because he hasn't published anything. So in 1926, um, under threat of losing his academic position, he withdraws into this hut in a place called Totenelberg in the Black Forest to write a book. And this is the book that's going to become Being in Time which will remain a book that people read and reread throughout their lives. It has the status that Phenomenology of Spirit has. You know, it continues to generate interpretation after interpretation, and it radically changes um, modern philosophy. So he retreats into this hut in the woods, um, and Husserl is sending him these very encouraging letters. So I'll quote from a letter that Husserl writes to Heidegger in 1926. I am happy to see that you are committed to the work through which you will become who you are and with which, as you well know, you have already begun fulfilling your own being as a philosopher. Nobody believes more firmly in you than I. And I am also convinced that in the end, no resentment you might feel will be able to throw you off the track. Nothing can divert you from the importance of doing what you alone can do. The book was planned in two parts. The second part doesn't get written, and in fact, only about two-thirds of the first part gets written. But when he has drafted that first two-thirds of the first part, um, he then wraps them up in flowers and delivers them to Husserl on April 8th, 1926, 
for Husserl's birthday. And he writes, dedicated to Edmund Husserl in friendship and admiration, Totnelberg in Baden, Black Forest, 8 April, 1926. It's also my son's birthday, by the way. My son was born on Husserl's birthday. <laughs> um, and that, that was 1926. The book is going to appear in 1927 under the title of Sein und Zeit, Being and Time. You know, and it is that, like phenomenology of spirit, it is that seemingly oxymoronic thing, which is a virtually impenetrable sensation. You know, for a book that obsesses so many people, you open it for the first time and think this is totally incomprehensible. <laughs> in German, in English, in any other translation you feel like reading. Husser, uh, Heidegger essentially in this book invents his own language. I mean, he invents a new philosophical vocabulary. In its own way, it's very poetic, but it is very turgid. Um, and it's almost impossible to translate because he is playing around with certain grammatical, syntactical, etymological possibilities that exist in German and don't translate very cleanly. And I had struggled with Husserl for years and years and years before, I mean, now almost 15, 20 years ago, um, Krzysztof Michalski, the Polish philosopher who I had mentioned earlier, gave me a copy of his first book on, on Heidegger. Um, and that book was in Polish. And reading Krzysztof's explanation in Polish, certain things that had never made sense to me in English started to make sense. You know, my Polish is obviously much worse than my English. I'm not a native speaker. But relatively, the German was translating better into Polish. And then eventually my German got good enough to get through it myself. But it's very, like, you have to kind of, you're now going to have to kind of bear with me and I'm going to try to feed you some of these terms, which are all on your handout, but I may write some on the board anyway. Uh, a psychologist who came to one of Heidegger's seminars uh, said, as Heidegger was trying to explain these concepts, it was as if a man from Mars had come across a group of earthlings and was trying to communicate with them. So if you have trouble, don't feel badly about yourself. Just like, just bear with it. It, take, it takes time. I'm going to try to feed you um, as much as I can in kind of as clear a way as I can today. But I, I realize this is not the kind of thing you just get the first time. Okay, so what is the book about? The book is about being. Being as such. Okay, so Heidegger's first move is to say, and his attitude is that everyone else, like it, his attitude tends to be kind of resentful and condescending towards the rest of the world. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> That's his general mode of operation. All of these philosophers, they've all been going in the wrong direction. They've forgotten what's most important. All of modern philosophy, which has been so obsessed with epistemology, so questions about knowledge, how can I know what really exists? How can I be sure of the correspondence between what I think I see, what I think I know, and what's really there? All of these questions about epistemology with which Descartes inaugurated modern philosophy, Heidegger said, they've come too soon. It's not the question philosophers first and foremost should be asking. Philosophers should be asking first and foremost not what, about what it means to know, but about what it means to be. We have forgotten about being. 
Heidegger talks about Zeins Vergessenheit. And again, this is all on your handout, so don't worry if you don't catch the German spelling. Zeins Vergessenheit, this forgetfulness of being, the forgetting of being. The ancient Greeks understood that philosophy was supposed to be about being. We have forgotten about it. Um, we have to return to the question of being before we can ask what it means to know. We have to ask what it means to be. Okay. Now, first of all, what is being and how is it different from individual beings, the kind of being we are? And this is the first really difficult, um, this is the first really difficult translation problem. Sein, death. Okay. Sein in German is the noun, is, I'm sorry, is the verb to be, which can also be a verbal noun. It can be to be or it can be the, the gerund being. So being as such, it is not countable. It is to be. You know, what is the meaning of being in the world? It is the uncountable being. Um, you will often see it with a capital B in English to designate that we're talking about the uncountable verbal noun. In German, all nouns are capitalized, which again messes up our translation problems, including verbs when they're used as nouns. Ein Zeyendus is a participial form, and it is a being. Countable. For instance, human beings. One, two, three, four. Sometimes in English you will see this translated as being with a lowercase b. Sometimes you will see it translated as entity. Does that, you're all looking at me in a kind of confused way. This is the first really crucial distinction. Now the problem is because in English, Zion and Ziondus both translate into being, the whole distinction with which he starts the book is often lost in English. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna try to kind of, I'm gonna try to make this as clear as I can. He's saying, okay, so what kind of beings, lowercase b, can ask about the meaning of being? Well, your cat can't ask. The bumblebee can't ask. The wild pig can't ask. Only we can ask, what does being mean? So we are in a privileged position. The kind of beings we are. Now Heidegger, do, Heidegger doesn't want to use the word human being and he rejects the language of consciousness. He rejects the, and he rejects the language of subject. He's going to replace human being, subject, consciousness with his own thing which is Dasein. Dasein literally means being there. Da is just there. And Sein, you know where that's coming from now. So Heidegger's going to talk about Dasein. Dasein is going to be translated in all sorts of different ways in English, but most often not translated. Most often, we're just going to leave it as Dasein. Dasein is going to stand in for the human subject to the extent that we still believe in a human subject, and we'll come back to that later. So the kind of beings we all are, as opposed to our house pets, farm animals, um, you know, anything you might run into in the woods, dinosaurs, we are Dasein. All of us are Dasein. We are there. We are somewhere there. Okay, we are in a privileged position 
because we can ask, what does being mean? Capital B. We're the only ones who can ask. So we're in a privileged position. That's what distinguishes us. Um, now, in order to pose the question, what is being? What is being as such, the uncountable being? We have to already have a kind of preliminary idea. If we had no idea what the verb to be means, we couldn't even articulate the question. Does that make sense? So this is what's going to become known as the hermeneutic circle. You have to kind of already be inside in order to pose the question. So this idea of being already inside is going to be very crucial, and hopefully in the next 25 minutes this will clarify itself. We're already kind of inside the question because we couldn't even think of the question if we didn't already have some preliminary sense. And this is also like kind of what makes us special. Okay. All right. So if for Descartes the crucial thing is I think, therefore I am, and if for Husserl, the crucial thing is, I think, an object. To think for Husserl is a transitive verb. It's always taking an object. Heidegger's first move is going to be to invert that you know, and say, I am, therefore, I think. Ontology precedes epistemology. So ontology refers to questions about being as such. Now, Heidegger's also going to use a word called ontic, which refers to questions about concrete, countable beings. So when you hear ontic and ontological, ontological, ontology precedes epistemology. That's like the study of the attempt to understand these questions, big questions about being. When Heidegger's talking about the ontic, he means talking about entities, things, people, creatures in the world. Okay. So if, Heidegger, if Husserl's transcendental ego was a kind of Hegelian Aufhebung, you know, of the empirical ego, Dasein in some ways is going to be the next move in a kind of overcoming of a notion of subjectivity. It's going to replace human existence. Okay, and I'll, I'll, I'll read you a little bit of Heideggerian language here, okay. We're special because we can ask the question. Dasein, he says, is an entity, ein Zeyendus, that does not just occur among other entities. Rather, it is ontically distinguished by the fact that in its very being, that being is an issue for it. Understanding of being is itself a definitive characteristic of Dasein's being. Dasein is ontically distinctive in that it is ontological. Um, so this, this is on your handout, so don't worry if you didn't catch it, but you notice the word being keeps coming up. But what Heidegger's basically saying is we are special among all the entities, all the lowercase beings of the world, because we're concerned about being as such. Unfortunately, other philosophers who he's going to feel he's now leaving in the dust have forgotten about that most essential question of philosophy in their fetishistic preoccupation with questions about knowledge. But now we're going back to it. Okay. So now, the other move he's going to make um, is say, okay, I feel like I need both hands for this. I have to put my notes down. The risk is that then I forget all the points I want to say. <laughs> okay, so the next move he's going to make is like, anyway, 
Who could ask the question about whether or not the world exists? How do I know it's really there? Who could ask that epistemological question anyway, except for us? Dasein, the kind of beings we are. Who could pose this question of the bridge? And he said, well, how could, we're the only ones who can ask the question, and it doesn't make any sense for us to ask the question about whether or not the world exists, because we are always already in the world. This is the most crucial concept he's going to give us. This is going to be a radical turn in philosophy. We are always already in the world. Um, this is immer schon in der Welt sein. Let me try to. So immer schon is just always already. And then Heidegger is also very into using these little de little hyphens here. In the world. So when you see kind of in the world, or being in the world, that's Heidegger with the dashes, with the hyphens. He's invented this phrase, immer schon in der Welt. Um, we are always already in the world. Now, when I was explaining this years ago to my kids when they were smaller, and they're both native German speakers, and they said, okay, what did Heidegger say? I said, he says, you know, wir sind immer schon in der Welt. We're always already in the world. And, and my son, Caleb, the one who was born on Husserl's birthday said, what about astronauts? Don't astronauts go out of the world? It's okay, Heidegger wasn't thinking about astronauts. The radical point here, and in fact, this like once, like once I really absorbed it, this became very intuitive to me, the way a lot of Freud's concepts became intuitively. The radical concept is here is that the whole question of subject and object is posed incorrectly because it presupposes a distance between subject and object. It presupposes that there is a place as if outside of the world, some kind of Archimedean point from which we can gaze at the world as a subject gazes at an object with a distance. And Heidegger says, but there's no distance. There's no outside. There's no way we can step outside of the world in order to say this foreign thing doesn't exist. Because we are always already in the world. We're always already inside. We're all, not only are we inside, but we're involved. We're not neutral. We're doing stuff. We're caring about stuff. We're with other beings. There's no outside to which we can retreat as if it were a laboratory and say, okay, I'm gazing at this object that is at a distance from me. There's no distance because we are always already in the world. Um, so whereas Husserl thinks he has solved the problem of the bridge, which intentionality, Heidegger solves the problem of the bridge by saying there's no need for a bridge because there is no gap, because there is no distance. Dasein is always already in the world. So it, it's, a it, it's a complete overturning of the whole subject-object paradigm. He's going to say there is no such thing as a subject that can be disarticulated and taken out of the object because we're always already in the world. Um, moreover, he says, our relationship to objects in the world is primordially, first of all, and most of the time, which is a phrase he also kind of fetishistically uses, our relationship to objects in the world 
is not one of gazing as a subject gazes at an object. Our relationship to the things of the world is that we use them. We're not seeing them per se, we are using them. We're using the pen, we're using our glasses, we're using the hammer. You know, they are, first of all, and most of the time, they are what he calls in German, zuhanden. They are ready to hand. Zuhanden hind is readiness at hand. Our, we don't go through the world contemplating it in an abstract sense. We go through the world using stuff. We use the cup, we use the knife, we use the chair. These objects are zuhanden. They're not objects of contemplation, they're objects of use. He says we only really see them as if they were objects of contemplation when something goes wrong, when the hammer breaks. Only then, in this kind of deficient secondary mode, do they become objects of contemplation, do they become what he calls present at hand, forehanded. Um, so this distinction between forehanded and suhanded, we only really see the hammer when it breaks. So again, you see another variation about what Shklovsky was doing, what Husserl was doing, under what conditions do we really see. We don't see the pen until it breaks. We don't see the hammer until it breaks. We don't see the glasses until they break. I, I, I had this thought, this, that you, you may not have had enough experience about babies to relate to this, but I will tell you anyway. So when my, when my son was born, the one who was born, who's Rose's birthday, um, and, and what I found completely overwhelming that nobody had warned me about parenthood was the sheer number of objects that, that you couldn't move around without. Like you needed diapers and diaper wipes and nose wipes and sippy cups and car seats and, and, and carriers and you know and little straps that held the toys and changes of clothes and just an enormous amount of objects. Like, I mean, it was as if like the, the material world was wreaking its vengeance on me for my having been insufficiently attentive to it in the past. And, and I like, I was losing my, I'm also very, like I'm very bad with putting things together, like the high chair and the, stro the stroller that you have to like collapse when you try to get on a plane and then you have to like take it, then you have to be able to put it together again or the, the car seat that you have to install in the rental car, you have to install in the taxi. Like I, I found this just impossibly difficult and I was constantly forgetting things and I was losing pacifiers because Caleb would just like throw them all around a tram or a bus or a train or something, you know, and losing like the lids to the sippy cups and then like losing the like little things of Cheerios. And I felt like all of these objects of the world that are supposed to be, first of all, and most of the time, tsuhanded. They're supposed to be ready to hand. And I felt like they were all cackling at me and they're grotesque for Handenheit. Just like humiliating me for my inability to deal with them. Like they all seemed like they were jumping out at me in their grotesque objectness. Um, this might not be an example you relate to terribly well yet. I mean, maybe you will, or you'll probably be more competent than, than I am when you have to be around kids. Okay, suhanden and forhanden. We only see the object when it breaks. Okay. We're in the world, and our relationship to objects is an intimate one. There's no, there's no place apart in the world for us to be because we're always already up to stuff with other beings. This condition of being always already in the world. He is also going to use the phrase, and this is an awesome word, geworfenheit. If, if, you, if you don't know the word geworfenheit, you're gonna be amazed that you ever could have lived without it. It's just a great word. 
Gvorfenheit is thrownness. He says, our condition, Dasein's condition of being in the world is one of thrownness. And there's a kind of violence to it. We are always already thrown into the world, into a time and a place not of our choosing. There's no before, there's no outside. We're always already thrown, and that is our Gevorfenheit. Huh. Okay. But now, once we are thrown into the world, since we are always already thrown into the world, we now have to decide how we are going to be in the world. Um, and then this is where things get kind of existentially more complex. Heidegger says, as long as it is, Dasein has always understood itself and always will understand itself in terms of possibilities. But one can deal with these possibilities in very different ways. So Heidegger is going to tell us there are two main ways of being in the world, for Dasein to be in the world. The first is inauthentic, this Uneigentlichkeit. Inauthenticity. And he's going to say that first of all, and most of the time, we live, all of us, in an inauthentic mode. Now, inauthenticity for Heidegger, and this is where it gets, it's not technical the way Husserl is technical. Now it's really getting kind of existential and almost moralistic, although Heidegger disingenuously, in my opinion, disavows the moralism here. Inauthenticity is essentially conformity. It is ceding the burden of decision-making to social convention. It is going along with what one does. And here's another, here's another Heideggerian term. Um, running out of space here. So dasman, which is not to be confused with man, um, dasman in German is the, you know, is the third person neutral. It's what one does in the sense of what do people do. Like what fork does one use in this situation? You know, it's the neuter, it's no one, it's everyone and no one. My, my mother, when I was, I was growing up in this suburban community in Pennsylvania, was constantly using this phrase, well, what will people say? Well, what will people say if you wear your hair like that? Well, what will people say? Like, what will people say if you wear white shoes after Labor Day or before Memorial Day? Or like, what will people, well, who are these people? The people are everyone and no one. You know, that's Dasman. Dasman is the everyone and no one. And Heidegger will then turn Dasman into another word that he makes up. And he will say there's a da, Dasman Selbst, which is the, the Dasman self, which sometimes gets translated as the, the they self, you know, or the, the one quote self, or it doesn't really translate. That's the inauthentic self. The Dasman Selbst is a self that just goes along with what everyone else is doing and does not take responsibility for making decisions. To live in the mode of Das Man Selbst 
is to be verfallen, to have fallen into the world. It is a deficient mode. It is an inauthentic mode. It's to get caught up in trivial curiosities in what he calls guerrera, which is idle talk, chattering gossip about nothing, um, to live in a state of ambiguity where you're not really making clear decisions for yourself. And I'll, I'll read you some of his language here. As every day being with one another, Dasein stands in subservience to the others. It itself is not. The others have taken its being away from it. The self of the everyday Dasein is the they self, the Das Mann selbst, um, which we distinguish from the authentic self, the self which has explicitly grasped itself. As the they self, the Das Mann selbst, Dasein is dispersed in the they, in the Das Mann, and must first find itself. So Dasein, first of all and most of the time, Heidegger says, kind of escapes, you know, falls into this easier way of being, into just going along with the crowd. Dasein flees from itself, loses itself in conformity. Everyone, he writes, is the other and no one is himself. The they which supplies the answer to the who of everyday Dasein is the nobody to whom every Dasein has already surrendered itself in being among one another. Okay. So it's a way of being alienated from one's authentic self, but it's also comforting. So one of the arguments he's going to make is that this alienation, this not being ourselves, is comforting, is easier than being ourselves. We just kind of go along with the crap. Okay. Now, as you may have guessed, the alternative, the less deficient mode, is authenticity, eigentlichkeit. You know, and again, the distinction between authenticity and inauthenticity is also bears analogy to the distinction between the natural attitude and the phenomenological attitude. You're kind of, you're nudging yourself into a kind of higher state of being. But authenticity is much more, it's not cold, it's not technical. Um, and it, it's actually very kind of, um, it's very tense and emotional and kind of dark for Heidegger. It's connected with temporality and it is profoundly connected with finitude, with this idea that we are always already, we are finite beings, we don't live forever, and our condition is always already sein zum Tode. We are always already being towards death. We are always already geworfen, we are always already thrown into the world, and we are always already proceeding towards our own death. That is the human condition. That's what it means to be human, we are all mortal. I, I was at, several years ago, I was in, I was back at Stanford where I did my, my PhD, where one of my advisors, a brilliant kind of Heideggerian philosopher, uh, Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht was having a, a Feshref conference, kind of retirement conference. And, um, and lots of his former students, like myself, came from all over the world um, to give papers in his honor. And also there were some of his current undergraduates at Stanford. 
and there was one of his current undergraduates who was a double major in humanities and computer science, and this is Stanford, so the Silicon Valley, <laughs> um, was also working in Silicon Valley, 18, 19 years old. And so we were talking about Heidegger and the condition of being towards death and its connection to authenticity, which I will get to in a moment. And he stood up and said, well, I, f I live in Silicon Valley. I, for instance, don't have any expectation that I will ever die. Death is just one more technical problem we are working on resolving. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was so stunned, and he was totally serious, you know, dead serious. I didn't even know what to do with that. <laughs> I just, that would really change the conversation. <laughs> but um, with Heidegger, we are still in a mode, we are pre-Silicon Valley, where we expect that our human condition is one of finitude, that is our lives come to an end, everybody's life come to an end. Okay, to live in authenticity is essentially to face death with eyes wide open, to face the reality that our human condition is sine sum tota. Authenticity means awareness of being towards death. Inauthenticity is essentially a way to flee from that awareness. Now, the thing about being towards death, of course, is that it's, you know, it's terrifying. Um, and Heidegger says, first of all, and most of the time, we don't face that. When we do confront our own mortality, we are overcome by what he calls angst. Now, angst is sometimes translated as dread, sometimes translated as anxiety. It's kind of like a synthesis between them. And Heidegger here makes a very firm distinction between angst, between this, this primordial anxiety and fear. And this is the critical distinction to get here. Fear, like the Husserlian cogito, takes an object. Fear is fear of something. Like, I am afraid of snakes. I'm deathly afraid of snakes. It's very primordial, it's irrational, it's not based on any confrontation of an actual snake, but it's a very clear object. People are afraid of spiders, you know, people are afraid of airplanes, you know, people, are, people are afraid of things, people are afraid of a thing, it takes an object. Angst, Heidegger says, differs from fear in that what we are afraid of is nothing. It is precisely nothing. It is the nothingness that is the in inevitable future of our existence. It's a kind of ontological queasiness when we realize that we are always already proceeding towards nothingness. And nothingness, the nothingness, is also a big Heideggerian thing. Um, it's only when we, this, this feeling of angst then, that is fear of nothing, that is in fact confrontation with our condition, gives us a feeling of unheimlichkeit. This is another great word. Freud also really likes this word. Um, unheimlichkeit, which is the standard translation into English is uncanniness. <sighs> But it's not a great translation because literally in German it is not being at homeness. From heim, from home. Um, 
And it's literally a feeling of not being at home in the world. And how can we be at home in the world? How can we be secure in the world when our existence is fundamentally ungrounded by the fact that it is finite? that we are always already moving towards our own death. So if we face that with eyes wide open, how can we ever feel at home in the world? You know, and so that to live in authenticity is that moment of being shaken into this awareness when one is overcome by angst and a feeling of unheimlichkeit. Now Heidegger gives you no incentive here to choose authenticity because it's clearly miserable. He claims in being in time he's not making a moral judgment, but it's obvious when you read it that he thinks it's much more impressive to live authentically than to live inauthentically. Um, for Heidegger, in order to take hold of ourselves, to make our own decisions resolutely, which is another big Heideggerian term, and Schlossenheit, we have to be shaken into this awareness. Um, death individualizes us, because everybody dies alone. It is only our, our moment of actual mindness that belongs to us alone is in fact death, and that he calls the aminikite, mindness. Each of us dies alone. Um, I, I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna leave you with something so, so uncheery, but this, there's something about that, it's both miserable, it's heroic, but it's also a little bit empowering, and Heidegger wants you to feel that empowering. Because when we are shaken into this being alone, facing our own death, our own future nothingness, it is that that can shake us into a resoluteness that causes us to take responsibility for our choices. And this is where, you know, as we move forward in this course, we'll see a big theme of existentialism is responsibility for choices. What it means to choose ourselves, to choose how we are going to be in the world. And angst is individualizing us. Okay, let me, I only have two more minutes, so let me just, let me just tell you a couple things in conclusion. Um, Dasein's privileged position is a bit analogous to the privileged position of the transcendental ego. But whereas for Husserl, the transcendental ego is radically transparent, Dasein is never transparent. In this sense, Heidegger is much closer to Freud. Because Dasein is always up to something, caring about something, maneuvering something, escaping from something, being tempted into inauthenticity. Parts of Dasein are always hidden from himself. So there's a lot more darkness. There's also a lot more grayness. There's a lot more attempts to flee from truth. Nothing is clear and transparent. Um, Heidegger is one of these masters of suspicion, um, and I think Paul Ricoeur's phrase. Nothingness, absence, attempts to flee, hiddenness, this is all part of our existential condition of Dasein. The moment of clarity comes in this being shaken into angst and unheimlichkeit, but it's pretty unbearable, so he doesn't give you much of an incentive to choose it. Um, okay, let me just leave you with, let me leave you with two more thoughts. Um, in 1928, Husserl re retires from his chair at University of Freiburg and arranges essentially for Heidegger to succeed him. 
Um, Emmanuel Levinas then goes and studies with both of them, and Emmanuel Levinas says, his chair, Husserl's chair, passed on to Martin Heidegger, his most original disciple, whose name is now the glory of Germany. A man of exceptional intellectual power, his teaching and his works are the best proof of the fecundity of the phenomenological method. Already his considerable success gives evidence to his extraordinary prestige. To be sure of having a seat at his lectures, which took place at one of the largest rooms in the university at five o'clock in the afternoon, I had to occupy it by 10 in the morning at the latest. Let me leave you with a question to think about, and this question will run through the rest of the course. Dasein replaces the transcendental ego, it replaces the subject, it is always already thrown into the world. It takes up space and moves through time. It is always in a time, in a place, and always proceeding through time. You can see this as the fleshing out of the human subject, much darker, much more complex, much more existentially thick than what you got with Descartes, what you got with Kant, what you got with Husserl. So one way to read Heidegger is this thickening, a radical thickening of the human subject into Dasein. The other way to read it is to say that once you no longer have a subject that can be cleanly disarticulated from the object, once there is no more distance between subject and object, because Dasein is always already in the world, do you then have a subject at all? And I'll, just, I'll leave you with that question, and uh, we'll come back to it. Uh, we'll come back to it after the midterm. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.